banks bottomed in March of 09. They briefly rallied off the low, and then they didn't lead again for nine more years. The price low and the leadership low or the relative low are often separated by many years. Um, that I think is the most important thing I can convey to you and your listeners um, and the group today. Welcome to the latest installment of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. Your host is Ryan Pallotta, and today he's talking with Christopher Verone. Christopher is a partner of Strategus. Strategus is a leading institutional brokerage firm focused on providing macro research to institutional investors and corporate executives worldwide. Today's podcast is a masterclass in understanding what's going on in the markets. Christopher tells us about his firm's approach of discovering what the market is telling us about the macro instead of the other way around. He explains why the current state of affairs doesn't have the hallmarks of a signature bottom and talks about why, when that bottom comes, it's unlikely to be V-shaped. You're going to feel a lot smarter after listening to our podcast with Christopher. And if you like that feeling, you're going to want to join Prometheus. At Prometheus, you can expand your knowledge by interacting with top investment professionals and accessing the funds they manage more easily than ever before. Go to our website, prometheusalts.com, and get started today. And now, enjoy our talk with Christopher Verone. Chris, thanks so much for jumping on with us. I really appreciate the time. You know, you have such a incredible market insights that we, you know everyone can see on CNBC or you know, many other places, especially on your Twitter as well. Uh, I'd love to start to get to know a little bit more about you. So, can you tell me a bit about your career in finance and you know how you started out working in uh, you know the career of you know looking at market trends and macroeconomic trends, especially where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ryan and Grant, thanks number one for having me. It's always fun to do. Um, things like this. And I would say just as a, um, a little bit of a primer on myself, uh, I run the technical and macro research at Strategus. We are an institutional broker dealer who we specialize in basically macro research for the institutional um, investors, hedge funds, mutual funds, endowments. But kind of my path to here kind of really began from not knowing what I wanted to do coming out of college. And I got the opportunity to first work uh, at a shop called ISI, which was really the kind of a pioneer in macro work. And I began to develop just an understanding and a love for markets and for economics. But what I quickly realized was that the market was the best economist. The market was the best strategist. The market was the best forecaster. So I kind of gravitated towards this approach of using market signals or price signals to come up with economic forecasts or earnings forecast or macro forecast. So we approach things a little bit different um, at Strategus and certainly through my work. Instead of saying, you know, I think the economy is going to do this and therefore the market will do that, I say, okay, what is the market telling us about the economy? What is the market telling us about the macro? So we approach it a little bit differently. We're very, very price sensitive. And I think overall it develops a kind of way of thinking um, that, that we hope is very helpful to our clients uh, and, and our investors. I, I kind of boil it down to three things. Mm-hmm. On any given day or any client conversation or any meeting, I try to accomplish three things. Number one, very simply, we try to be provocative. I, I look at thousands of charts and data sets every week. I'm sure there's one thing in 15 or 20 or 30 minutes that I can show you or your audience 
that will either change the way they think about the world or confirm the way they think about the world. The second goal, of course, um, is to be correct as often as possible. Now, I'll concede we're no more right or wrong than anyone else, um, but we try very hard to be pragmatic about our work, not dogmatic about our work. And again, recognizing that the market is the collective wisdom of the group and we'll figure it out long before we figure it out. And then third, and this is a big reason why I spend you know, upwards of 100 days a year on the road talking to clients, because I think as an analyst, you have to strike this very symbiotic relationship between time you spend in front of your screens and time you spend out in the real, work or real world talking to people. And we just learn so much about the consensus and positioning um, out on the road. So those are the three things we try to accomplish uh, every day. Um, and I think it's, or at least I hope it's helpful uh, for our clients and our investors. Yeah, I'm sure it's super helpful. Can you talk a little bit about what market sig- what you mean by market signals? Like what market signals are you looking at when you are you know, looking at this information that you're gathering here? Yeah, so I'll give you a great example, actually, of, of something that we've, um, we've worked on pretty extensively over a number of years. Um, in, in trying to identify relationships within the market to give us a signal or a tell on the economy. One thing, for example, that we care a lot about is the message from consumer discretionary stocks, right? Okay. What are these very cyclical consumer-oriented names telling us about the shape of the consumer or the health of the economy? And one ratio or relationship in particular is um, that between discretionary, so the more cyclical parts Mm -hmm. of the consumer space versus staples, the more defensive part. And looking at that ratio to get a sense of whether the market believes the consumer is healthy or not healthy. And I'll give you a great example. In kind of the early days of COVID, um, let's call it April, May of 2020, for all the pessimism that was around us, right? Despite everything being closed, consumer cyclicals were so massively outperforming consumer defensives. And like right there was a signal or a message to us that, hey, wait a second. The market has figured something out here. Now, that revealed itself over time. The market figured out that the stimulus would be abundant and that we would send out checks to consumers. And that's why these very cyclical consumer stocks were working. But it's listening to signals like that to kind of draw some conclusion about the future. Now, here we are two and a half years later, and we're actually getting the opposite message. Despite what I think many would describe as a relatively healthy consumer environment or one in which consumers have a lot of savings, the opposite message is occurring. Consumer staples are outperforming consumer discretionary, which to us is the market telling us, wait a second, there's some clouds here on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Um, And and perhaps the consumer is, or at least the market is beginning to discount a time where the consumer will not be as healthy. So it's relationships like that that we can use to get an idea of where we are in the profit cycle or the business cycle. Another example, uh, we actually worked on and published this morning. And today was PMI day, right? So we got the manufacturing PMI data um, this morning. I, I think a lot of uh, um, people who are either unfamiliar or new to the business think uh, think of economic data um, as confirming or coincident. We actually look at it more contrarian. And in fact, the weaker data is actually, as crazy as it sounds, the better the forward market performance tends to be over the next six and 12 months. So we look for things like first decile economic data prints. So in the, in the first you know, decile of all the observations historically is actually where some of your better forward market returns have come from. And you know, today we got a PMI reading that was in the seventh decile historically. So it's tempting to want to say, oh, there's signal here. But in mm-hmm. reality, the signal from economic data 
comes when it's in one of the two extremes. And most of the data is not in one of the two extremes. You have to kind of find the moment in the cycle um, where you're getting some of those extremes and be ready to act in a contrarian fashion. So I love what you said about talking to people as a way to try to check on market signals. One thing that yeah. comes across a little bit confusing now, we talk about potentially being in a slowdown or a recession that could last 12 to 18 months. But when I personally look around, I see people spending a lot more than they typically would. People are excited to go on vacations. People are excited to spend. Consumers, like all my friends, are spending more than ever, especially because people are rushing out to go and do things again. Do you think there's a bit of a disconnect because we're coming out of COVID and what is actually happening in the economy? Yeah, I, I do. And you know, this is where I think it gets back to thinking about the market as a discounting mechanism. And you know, these consumer stocks, many of them, particularly the service-oriented stocks, the, reop- the quote, reopen stocks, mm-hmm. actually performed best when most things were closed. Like, Think about the, the paradox or the irony of that, yeah. that, the, um, that this reopen theme that, that, that Wall Street has been so hung up on for two years. The reopen stocks work best from... April of 2020 to November of 2020. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's the irony here. And in the you know 18 months since, actually, it's been a pretty underwhelming part of the market. And you know, this is where I think some market history and what we really try to do is find comparable examples in history. Now, you would say, well, how could you possibly find a comparable market example to COVID or to the financial crisis or 9-11? What you have to remember, though, while every crisis might be unique or every event might be unique, as investors, we're still governed by the same three choices, right? Like Ryan, are you, are you buying something? Are you selling something? Or are you doing nothing, right? So mm-hmm. regardless of the event, those are the choices that you're governed by. So when I look at something like COVID, yes, an extraordinary uh, event, but still governed by the same basic forces of human psychology and investment psychology that governed every other cycle or every other crisis um, uh, in the past. So just an important way of thinking and really helps us not to get too wrapped up in the moment of, you know, what can be very emotional, um, or stressful, um, events. And I, Mm. I I think kind of putting that into some context today, as far as the market goes, I mean, it's, it's two and a half years after COVID and the street's still talking about reopen as if it's some kind of novel concept. I mean, these stocks have already priced it in. (laughs) And, and I think the likelihood that your leadership is going to be found in those names, history would say that's unlikely. I mean, think about every crisis has an epicenter, right? In 2008, it was the banks. In 2002, it was tech. In 1991, it was real estate. When you're in the epicenter um, of a crisis, you tend to rally pretty good the first, say, six or 12 months off the low. And then you tend to go dormant for a long period of time. Banks bottomed in 09, but no one really made money in them for the next 10 years. Tech Mm -hmm. bottomed in 02, but no one really made money in tech for the next number of years. I think that's kind of how you want to think about consumer or reopen or travel stocks here. They rallied off the low, but man, the history of being an epicenter group is not great for the next number of years. So where do you think we are in the epicenter right now? And how closely related to like the dot-com bubble do you think we are? in yeah. where we saw such high prices collapse to where they are now. And it leads into my next question, which was, are stocks essentially somewhat oversold at this point, or are they where you yeah. think they should be? So as, as, as we always say, um, we know we don't know. We know the, the big man upstairs is probably the only one who does. Um, this is not a precise business, right? It's hard enough to get 
direction even a little bit, right? So what we try to do is just kind of get the big puzzle pieces to somewhat fit together. And when I think about kind of where we are today, this is a market that I would describe as maybe having gotten moderately oversold over the last couple of weeks. I think we're rallying out of those conditions, but in the context of a downtrend, in the context of a bear market. And that's where I think there's still some unresolved or unfinished business. You know, clearly the very speculative corners of the market, the ARK stocks, Bitcoin, the very expensive, you know, high multiple software stocks, many of those are back to where they were now pre-COVID, right? Right. So whatever outperformance or gains were seen in those first 18 or 24 months of COVID have all been surrendered. But it's not just those stocks that have given back all the COVID gains, right? Starbucks has given back all the COVID gains. JP Morgan's given back all the COVID gains. Amazon's given back all the COVID gains. So we're wondering, hmm, they've hit the speculative stuff. They've hit some of the real stuff as well. Ultimately, is this bear market or is this correction, whatever you want to call it, is it over when the S&P has returned back to where it was pre-COVID. So S&P on 1231.19 was roughly 3,400. Mm-hmm. Is that a reasonable target, kind of a bear market target, you know, over the next number of months or next number of quarters? That's our general thinking. We know it could be wrong and we're open to the idea it could be wrong. So let's ask ourselves, okay, what would we need to see on this rally? Or what would we need to see over the next couple of months to say, wait a second, we're too negative here. This rally is the real deal. We've put a major low in time to get aggressive on the long side. When you're coming off these bear market lows, one of the common features over time, you know, whether you're looking at the 1962 low or the 1982 low or the 2009 low, any, any major low in history, the one thing they have in common is urgency off the low, unmistakable momentum. And we see it under the surface. We see it internally. So one indicator we look at on any given day I want to know what percent of the S&P, what percent of the 500 stocks in the S&P are experiencing a two standard deviation move, right? That's the signal that says, whoa, this is, this is something better than just a bounce. This is the real deal. At these major market bottoms, it's not uncommon to see 50, 60, 70% of stocks give you that, that, that two sigma, that two standard deviation signal on any given day. The best we've done on this rally is like five or 6%. So it, it, to, to say it has that, that signature of a major bottom, I think it's premature to say that. So that's one thing I would look for. Second, major lows, major bottoms see credit improve quickly and dramatically. We've seen a little improvement in credit spreads over the last week or so, but I would be a little bit reluctant to say that it's been some, some dramatic or earth-shattering uh, improvement there. So we have a base case. But like anything in this business, we know that base case could be wrong and we need to poke holes in it and kind of find the signals or the message that would encourage us to change our view. Would it be reasonable to say that we could continue to continue going lower based on the fact that interest rates are probably still going to keep going up? And as interest rates go up, obviously markets will potentially keep going down. And we have a lot of uncertainty for the next 12 to 18 months with like being in a potential recession and whatnot. Yeah, so... I would say, number one, I'd be careful about the word uncertainty simply because every environment's uncertain. You just get disguised into believing <laughs> it's not. Right? I, I would be, frankly, more worried if you thought this was a very certain environment, right? It's certainty where the risk of being wrong is actually higher, right? When you're in very uncertain environments, um, I think it says a little bit about sentiment. So actually, I, I would view from a contrarian perspective, moments of great, unquote, uncertainty is actually pretty interesting, pretty constructive. Mm. Uh, we can talk about that at a different time. But as far <laughs> as kind of the 
as far as kind of the question goes, um, I still think there's unresolved business lower. And I think a big reason that we've had the start to the year as we've had, as you, I think, correctly identified, was the move we've seen in bond yields. I mean, we've had a rip-roaring move in bond yields to start the year. Now, my sense is just from traveling around that the general consensus is investors are starting to think about our position for what's called you know, peak inflation or peak bond yields. Mm-hmm. I'm a little skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of that simply because, well, if markets are discounting mechanisms, shouldn't energy stocks peak before inflation peaks or um, shouldn't you know utilities peak before bond yields peak? And none of those things have, have really happened here yet. Uh, the, the energy sector is still leadership basically any way you cut it. Um, you have new highs in UK bond yields today. You have new highs in German bond yields today. So I actually think there's some complacency about where bond yields could go here. Uh, we continue to like them higher. I think that pressures certain groups within the market. I think it pressures tech. And tech happens to be where a lot of the weight is, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the weights of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. Um, I think higher rates are a burden for those groups. Can we talk a little bit about that downward pressure on groups like tech and growth and yeah. where you see that going? So obviously, if inflation continues to be a concern and the Fed keeps fighting that with higher interest rates, that'll put downward pressure on some of these growth and tech names that you just talked about. One thing that's interesting is people you know, often say, like, we can't look at the prices that were during COVID. Like when you saw, saw Shopify at $1,200 and now it's at like three fifty dollars or something. I'm like. What, when where can you look at these past performance of these prices? Because a lot of them are below their fifty-two week lows, and yeah. how can we start looking at that growth in tech sector uh, to make proper investments in the future? So let's think about it this way: um, the last time tech went something, last time tech went through something like this, you, know, you, you brought it up earlier, was kind of the, the two thousand to two thousand two dot com bear market. Um, it was about a two and a half year bear market. And then there were some vicious rallies along the way. I mean, in 2001 alone, the NASDAQ rallied 50% twice. And each time went on to make new lows just a couple months later. So like, let's not forget, in, in these bear markets, the rallies can be just as painful as the declines. For, for mm-hmm. But let's think about something. When tech bottomed in October of 2002, that's, that was the price bottom in tech. It didn't bottom relative to the S&P until four or five years later. So even though the stock stopped going down, it took another four or five years before they started outperforming again. And that's kind of how I want to think about tech today. Like I'm okay with the idea that you know we're dead wrong and we've seen the low in Apple, we've seen the low in Google, we've seen the low in Salesforce, we've seen the low in Amazon. Okay, that's fine. But does it mean they're going to come back as your leadership? That's where I think history pushes back. I mean, we use the example of the banks. Banks bottomed in March of 09. Mm-hmm. They briefly rallied off the low, and then they didn't lead again for nine more years. Wow. So, you know, the, the as we like to say in our work, the price low and the leadership low or the relative low are often separated by many years. Um, that, I think, is the most important thing I can convey to you and your listeners um, and the group today. Do you think that certain names like the Teslas and Shopify's that seen such incredible prices during the pandemic or the, over the last two years, are they? Can you look at that performance as future performance, or are we purely like in a new territory now where their prices can go anywhere? I, I think we've 
change one of the inputs pretty meaningfully. Um, cost of money. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think we're moving to an environment. I mean, rates are still quite low relative to history, but I do think we're moving to an environment where everything gets rationalized. And mm-hmm. I, I think the the bear markets that you've seen in some of the what were unrational parts of the market, and a lot of these stocks are down, many of them, 70, 80, 90%. Mm-hmm. You think about like Zooms, the Teladocs, the, right? These were the names. We called them um, the baby fangs, Zoom, Teladoc, mm-hmm. um, DraftKings, right? All, all these stocks that as recently as two years ago were thought about as forever changing the world. Well, they may, but you know, you still have to survive a bear market first. And then it kind of brought us to, we had kind of the, the baby fangs. Then we had a group of stocks that we called the almost fangs. Mm-hmm. The stocks as recently as six months ago were kind of talked about in the same conversation as Apple. Workday, ServiceNow, Salesforce, Adobe. Now, a lot of that stuff's down 30 40 50%. And this is where I think investors believe there's valuation support or hope there's valuation support. I'm okay with that. Maybe the price lows are in. But from this group, is this really where your next leaders are going to be found? I, I think at a minimum, we've done so much damage to these stocks where it's going to take quarters, if not years, to fix some of that. And I think we've begun that process. I think it's going to be a longer process than people expect. We've gotten so used in this QE era. We've gotten so used to V-bottoms, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's been a V-bottom. <laughs> 2011 was a V-bottom. 2020 was a V-bottom. Mm-hmm. The V-bottom seems, un- seems unlikely here. Um, that, I think, is a big takeaway. Exactly. Like even, you know, after March of 2020, it looked, it was more like a, a V-shaped bottom. And how, how are you looking? I, yeah. I mean, th- that was uh, maybe one of the great V-bottoms in history, um, <laughs> what we saw coming after March 2020. How would you look at it today then? And how would you judge stocks like Zoom, which, you know, there's certain things that I love, like Zoom. Obviously, I love Shopify, um, even Netflix. But how would you look at things like that today when you're re-looking at them and how the macro trends of the world are going to affect them? I think it's a group of stocks that went through, many of them went through an extraordinary decade, right? So even before COVID, right? You look at the Amazons and the Netflixes. I mean, these were your leaders for a decade. I would encourage you to try to find me examples of stocks that lead for 10 years and lead for 10 more. Mm-hmm. Hard to find. It's just not, history is not littered with a lot of examples of that. And we show a chart in our work. It looks at, at the end of every decade, what the 10 largest companies were, right? At the end of the 70s, it was, it was all energy stocks. Mm-hmm. At the end of the 80s, it was all Japanese stocks. At the end of the 90s, it was all tech stocks, right? At the end of the, two, the 2000s, it was all Chinese stocks, right? Mm-hmm. How many of those 10 years later were still your leaders? Still leaders. Not many. Yeah. Not many. Even the dot-coms, they're not I mean, around it. <laughs> they're just stocks, mm-hmm. right? They're just stocks. And I think sometimes we forget that. Um, you know, Perhaps the greatest example... Um, in history are the are the nifty 50 stocks of the late 60s and early 70s, right? These were probably most analogous to the fangs today. And they were kind of nicknamed the one direction stocks of the late 60s and early 70s, meaning the only du- the only direction they went was up, right? The one direction mm-hmm. stocks. Um, they peaked slowly over about a two-year period between 71 and 73. The earnings never deteriorated. The fundamentals never deteriorated. Simply the price investors were willing to pay for the earnings. That's what changed. And they went dormant for 10 years. So, I mean, this is McDonald's, IBM, Estee Lauder, 
Procter Gamble. Those were the nifty 50 stocks of the late 60s, uh, early 70s. The fundamentals didn't deteriorate and the stock still went dead for 10 years. That's just at least something to be aware of or think about when we talk about the Apples and the Microsofts today. Great companies. And you don't have to convince me that the earnings are going to remain great. I get it. But has the price investors are willing to pay for those earnings changed? That I think is the big story. I love that you take almost a historian's approach to this. It seems like you're definitely a history buff. You, you've researched things to the nth degree that back in the 60s and 70s. How are you looking? What's, what does make you excited then today when you're looking at different sectors or different stocks? And like, what are you getting excited about? And how can then somebody navigate this when, you know, if, we, if we're looking for new leaders of the future? Yeah, I would say perhaps it's not, not very virtuous of me, but we like... Um, energy here um, a lot. Uh, we think this is the idea that you're going to just overnight move to a fossil fuel free world. We think um, it's pretty silly. We think the market thinks it's pretty silly. When you look at the strength, the continued strength we've gotten from the energy stocks, I mean, energy right now is only 5% of the S&P. There was a time 40 years ago where it was 30% of the S&P. Let's say we're never going back to 30, but five's too small. Mm-hmm. And our, our, our sense is that in, investors have been driven away from this group because of consultants and ESG and all the like, mm-hmm. um, where there's been chronic underinvestment, there's been chronic underownership. And I think the events of the last six months are causing a lot of big investors to rethink that. So we think we're early in the energy move. Um, there's simply a shortage of energy stocks. There's only 20 large cap energy stocks left in the world. That's down from mm-hmm. 50 or 60 as recently as a decade ago. So you've seen massive consolidation in the industry. You've seen a de-equitization. I think we're relatively early in the life cycle there. Um, I think um, you've seen after you know the, the paradox of, I remember at the early days of COVID, there was a consensus view on the street that Healthcare stocks would work during COVID. Didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, Healthcare was actually one of the worst performing groups during COVID. Mm -hmm. I I think there's an irony or a paradox as COVID fades to the background um, that healthcare actually can start to work here uh, a little bit. And uh, that's a group that's been positively inflecting in our work now for called maybe six months. Um, I think um, defense contractors, uh, listen, we got to invest in the world that is not the world we want. And Mm -hmm. Um, the defense contractors are leadership here. Um, insurance is leadership uh, in our work. The the big material and basic mm-hmm. resource companies are. So it's not the leadership of the last decade. It's mm-hmm. stuff you can hold and touch and feel, which is a little bit different. Would that be things in like Palantir in defense or are you looking at other well, you know, I, I would think of that kind of more in the like Palantir was kind of given a software multiple. I, I, I think that's kind of caught up in in the whole exodus from from growth. I'm thinking more stuff like you know, if you look at the defense contracts, Lockheed, Raytheon, Northrop. Right? These are the, frankly, these are the stocks I thought gave us a pretty good signal that all was not right with mm-hmm. Russia, Ukraine six, seven months ago. Um, those stocks have continued to outperform here. Remember, the consensus going into the war was, oh, this will be over in a week, right? Uh, it'll be quick. The defense contractors never bought that story. Like when you look no. at their leadership before, during, and since, I think the market is saying, hey, this is more serious than people think. This may be around longer than people suspect. 
Um, so again, kind of going back to how we started our conversation, using the market to develop a view of the world, not developing a view of the world and then seeing what parts of the market fit. <laughs> what fits. Right. So uh, yeah, I love perhaps that. a little bit backwards than, than many. Well, you just led perfectly into my next question, which is like on Sunday, it'll be, I think, 100 days into the war in Ukraine. And how do you think that that is still pricing into the market? And where do you think we go with that? You know, I, I thought 100 times there was a peace deal already, but, you know, it's still we're still, you know, in the middle of that. Um, so so do you remember, Ryan, in the in the early days of COVID, um, one of the popular views across the street was, you know, COVID's not going to change anything. It's just going to accelerate the trends that were already in place, right? That was the, the, the widely held view. Well, shouldn't we be applying that same view today with around Russia-Ukraine? Meaning the trends that were already in place going into this were prices were rising, oil was rising, gas was rising, commodity prices were up. And all this has done is to serve to entrench those things or even accelerate them. So I, I think you hear less of that view today because it's a, it's a less convenient view because the, the COVID example was all tech stocks, which everyone owned. This mm -hmm. is all energy and basic material stocks, which no one owns. No so one it's a, kind of a less convenient view. Um, mm -hmm. But that, I think, is the lesson here. It's not that this conflict is so unique in the chapters of history. It's that conflicts or events, big macro events, they tend to accelerate or entrench what was already happening. And that's what I think has been most evident about this, this Russia-Ukraine thing. I mean, this was a world that was probably already moving away from globalization. It was already moving kind of to a more nationalistic view of the world or populist view of the world. I, I think events like this only serve to accelerate that. So do you think that this is basically just accelerating a bear market that was we were already walking into? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, when... When you look back, you might say, oh, you know, February 24th or whatever it was, 14th, the invasion was kind of the acceleration of the downs. But this was a market that was unhealthy and sick into this, right? Mm -hmm. It could have been anything. And I, I would say the same thing about COVID, right? The market kind of going into COVID was sick. Yield curve mm -hmm. was inverted. Cyclicals were underperforming. Before any of us could fathom the idea of what a pandemic would look like, the market was already sick going into it. It could have been anything. I think likewise here. This could have been anything. That's super interesting to think about it that way. And just like we had talked to some commodities experts, like Robert Mullen, yeah. who had been on our pod, and yeah, sure. he, had, he had mentioned that he had predicted energy and commodity prices skyrocketing for a long time. It was just the war that accelerated that. Uh, he was They were inevitably going to go up. It's just the Ukrainian invasion uh, sped that you know, process it, up. It, it, it's... Everything. So at the end of the day, we're, we're basically trend followers. We try to identify trends and say, okay, is this trend likely to continue or, or change? Um, everything trends in life, right? Prices trend, earnings trend, politics trend, fashion trends, right? Uh, things tend to trend. Um, when a trend is in place, the news is almost irrelevant. Like all news serves to support the trend. I, I always think about it when, when a stock's in a good uptrend, the earnings don't matter. Um, bad earnings doesn't matter. Stock goes down for a couple of days, boom, comes right back. Mm -hmm. I think about that the other way though. When the trend is changing or a stock or a market's in a downtrend, you get great news, but it doesn't go up. Hmm. 
right? What's the market telling you? So it, it's looking for these examples, I think, um, from markets or in our work when things don't respond to news like one would expect. Um, that's the, I think, the goal of a lot of what we do. What would you tell people on navigating times like this? Is it maybe bad just to sit on your hands and not do anything for a little bit until we kind of see some of these things clear themselves up? Or how are you advising your clients to kind of operate during these times? Yeah, I, I think the, the big message for moments like this is, number one, recognize that we're in the throes and have been for the last year of a major leadership change. And ask yourself, okay, on the other side of this, where is the leadership and use this period of unsettled prices to kind of get bigger in the areas that are likely to be the leadership on the other side and conversely get smaller in the areas that we think are surrendering leadership. So mm-hmm. I think we've been in this big you know, 18 month process basically since late 2020, early 21 of tech and growth stocks surrendering leadership for what I believe will be a very long period of time. So like in the last couple of weeks, you get a little rally in that stuff. Use those rallies to get smaller in the areas that are telling us that they're surrendering leadership. And then conversely, you know, when, when energy corrects and it will, when materials correct and they will use that mm-hmm. weakness to get bigger there, right? Use these periods to kind of change where your overweights and your, and your underweights are. Do you see energy correcting or continuing to go up from here? I, I think we shouldn't forget in a proper bear market, which I believe this is ultimately everything will get tagged. There aren't groups or stocks that just totally escape it. They, as they say in the business, um, they come for everyone at the end. I I think there will be a moment in the next six months where even the good stuff gets hit. Mm -hmm. Remember, energy went into this period as leadership. It's been leadership during. I think it's going to come out the other side as your leadership as well. It's basically doing what tech did for like much of the last 12 or 13 years. Anytime we had a correction... Tech or growth went into it as leadership. It maintained its leadership during and came out the other side as your leader. It didn't do it this time, right? Mm-hmm. Tech lost its leadership well before 2022 began. It was weak going in. It was weak during. I think it'll be weak coming out. What do you mean by that, that it lost its leadership coming in? What do you yeah. think so like, created if you look that? Like some of the, the, the major tech bubble, like let's choose Amazon mm-hmm. um, as a kind of an intersection of consumer and, and tech. Amazon peaked relative to the S&P in summer of 2020, mm-hmm. not in fourth quarter of 2021. Peaked two years ago. All right, so it went into this, this bear marker, this drawdown, not as a leader, frankly, as a pretty indifferent mm-hmm. stock. I mean, look at, you know, we talked about some of the, the real speculative stuff, the ARC stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That stuff peaked all the way back in first quarter of 2021. So the, the groups that go in to the, the problematic period or the troubled period weak tend to be the weakest during mm-hmm. that I think is a big takeaway. You mentioned the arc stuff and are, are you seeing fund managers perform differently in this type of environment? Like the people like the Kathy Woods or Bill Ackman's like, are they operating their funds differently under this type of environment? I can't speak to what others are doing or not doing. I can speak to the data I see. And one thing we've been surprised about is how persistent the flows into this stuff has been despite the performance. Like the flows into ARC have been really persistent despite a 70% drop. Mm-hmm. And 
And what you mean by uh, flow, just for our, our listeners who don't know, you yeah. So mean, if you look at like the um, the amount of money that goes into the fund, mm-hmm. right, really hasn't backed off despite the lack of performance. The lack of performance. So, like, so you know, we would look to big outflows as a sign of capitulation, right? Big outflows would mean, hey, people have given up. They've thrown the towel, and that hasn't mm-hmm. happened here yet. Which is yeah. just a very odd thing for a drawdown of this magnitude. So, you know, one of our kind of big themes this year has been we call it watch what they do, not watch what they say. Right? Mm-hmm. Talk to anyone right now and look like looking around our <laughs> office. Most people are pretty negative, fairly <laughs> fairly bearish. Same. But what have they done to express that? Mm-hmm. And when I look at the flow data, it's like it doesn't look like people have done anything to kind of express that. And that's why I'm reluctant to make the bear market low call yet that the bottom is in. So I'm not sure actions are commensurate with words yet. Mm-hmm. Other examples of that, you could look for very, very discrete examples like VIX, volatility index. Mm-hmm. Try to find a good bottom over the last 30 or 40 years where VIX is below 40. You can't. Mm-hmm. VIX never got above 40 during this whole drawdown. It's like, hmm, this is either the first low of our careers where VIX is going to stay below 40 or it's not a low. You choose. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's data like that. The street right now, if you look at the futures positioning, so positioning in the futures market, the street is still running long S&P futures. That's odd to me, right? Good market bottoms. Everyone's running short because they've given mm-hmm. up on the long side. So those things haven't happened yet, which I think may need to happen over next number of months we'll see yeah like that brings me to say are like are there other shoes to drop that would show us that there's a real bottom like what if housing prices continue to drop with interest rates rising or are there other things that you see happening in the macro markets that would force us down even more to a real bottom i i think one of the biggest stories that doesn't get enough attention right now is what's going on in japan in terms of like next shoe to drop where so look at bond yields around the world u.s 10-year yields are let's call it three percent UK 10-year yields are 250. German 10-year yields are now 125. Italian yields have spiked. Um, the Bank of Japan is still trying to keep a lid on 10-year J- Japanese notes at 25 basis points. And to do that, they've had to let the currency depreciate meaningfully. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that seems unsustainable. right? So we're always looking for like things around the world that appear unsustainable. I, I think that's an example. So... Is it really feasible the Bank of Japan is going to successfully keep bond yields this low when bond yields all around the world have started to move? Well, if they're going to be successful doing that, they're going to be very unsuccessful with the currency. And the currency has fallen out of bed here. So the weakness in yen, which has now had trickle-on effects, and you've seen weakness in Chinese currency, you've seen weakness in the other uh, emerging Asian um, economies, that I think is a macro risk here. That's one. I say another macro risk that's on our minds is um, Italian spreads have started to widen. And I bring it up because they go back 10 years ago, 2011, 2012, during the European debt crisis, it was QE that kind of saved Italy. And, you know, the ability to you know monetize debt and keep rates very low, well, does QT, this quantitative tightening, actually now become a bit of a headwind there? And is that why credit is deteriorating um, throughout Europe? So those are some of the macro things on our radar that whether they play out or not, again, 
only the big man knows, but they can't be neglected or ignored. Chris, the way you approach things and think about things in a really innovative way, you're one of my favorite guests we've ever had on. So I really appreciate the time and I hope we can have you on more often. No, it's been incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the time and uh, good luck to everybody. Thank you. Take care.